how we as the church answer the distresses and difficulties each of us faces as exiles. The church isn't just a group of individual Christians. We are an alternative society and a community of refuge for one another when we experience the suffering and estrangement of this world. But it takes work for us to be that for one another. As Peter says today, above all, it takes the work of love. So as we hear this call from God this morning, let's go to him in prayer and ask for his help. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know your son, Jesus Christ, better. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As we work our way through these verses today, we're going to see two main things. The first is kind of an introduction to what Peter is saying afterwards. The first is that the end is near. Peter says the end of all things is at hand in verse 7. And then he walks us through how we are to live knowing that the end is near. He commands four things of us. First, he commands sober-minded prayer. Second, persevering love. Thirdly, joyful hospitality. And then finally, he commands God-empowered service. Let's begin with his first kind of introductory remark. Last week, Peter interspersed reference time that is past time we are living in throughout his passage. He talked about the time that is past, and he talked about living the rest of the time in the flesh for the will of God. But this week, Peter puts the time we are living in up front and center at the very beginning. He begins with the phrase, the end of all things is at hand. Then he follows it up with therefore, and he goes on to tell us how we are to live. The therefore roots everything that Peter says about how we are to live, how we are to live as Christians in the church. It roots it all in what he says about the time that we are living in. So we need to very clearly understand what time we are living in as Christians if we are to live rightly. The phrase Peter uses is the end of all things is at hand. At hand simply means nearby. It's coming close. 
Jesus uses this word twice in Matthew 26 when he comes back to find his disciples asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane after he has told them to pray. He says, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The hour that he's speaking of is nearby. Judas, his betrayer, is nearby. And Peter says to his readers in 62 AD, the end of all things is at hand. It's nearby. It's right here. It's coming soon. But what does Peter mean when he says the end of all things? Remember, throughout this letter, Peter has talked about three times that mark the world that we live in. There's the time before the death and resurrection of Christ, the time after the resurrection of Christ, and the day that Christ will return. He's referred to that last event, the day of Christ's return, in several different ways. He's called it the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's called it the day of visitation, and he's called it the last time. Now he calls it the end of all things. And when you first read it, this might bring to mind a picture of a man with a sandwich board around him that says, the end is near. Someone declaring perhaps an apocalyptic end to the world. Is that what Peter is saying? Is he saying that everything is going to be over when Jesus returns? This world, gone. You and me, gone. Dogs, cats, mountains and rivers, gone. Is that what Peter is saying? The word Peter uses for end is the Greek word telos. It can mean the point at which something ceases to exist. But just like our English word end, it can also mean purpose or outcome or goal. The opening question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose or the goal of humanity? In 1 Peter 1.9, Peter says we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. The word that's translated outcome there is also the word telos, the end of your faith. Peter's not talking about our faith ceasing to exist. He's talking about it finally reaching its goal, finally reaching its culmination, its consummation. That's the way that Peter is using the word end Here, the word telos, the goal of all things is at hand. The consummation, the completion of all things is about to take place. This is what he has said again and again in this letter. The period of time that you and I live in is an in-between state. It's the overlap of the old age of sin and the new age of new creation. And what Peter has said again and again is that this is temporary. This is going to end. God is the director of history, and like every good director, he is orchestrating every event to come to a final goal, a final outcome. And that final goal, both for you and for me and for all of humanity, is just around the corner, Peter says. 
time we are living in is only a little while. But the next step isn't oblivion. It's not some terrible post-apocalyptic world where zombies are everywhere. The next step after the consummation of all things is eternal bliss. Living eternally with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No more sin. No more suffering. No more exile. Peter doesn't say in chapter 5, verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, it's all over. No, he says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Brothers and sisters, the end of all things is the beginning of eternal joy in God's new creation. That time is just around the corner. Therefore, is the next word that Peter uses. God intends our understanding of those end times, our understanding of what is to come in the last days to cause us to live in a certain way now. And specifically in these verses, he tells us what we should do as our life in the church. I don't mean in this church building. I mean life among God's people. How are we to treat each other knowing that Jesus is about to return? Peter uses that repeated phrase, one another. He talks about loving one another, showing hospitality to one another, and serving one another. This is brotherly and sisterly language. The one another's are those who are also elect exiles, who have been born again to a living hope. It's the church. And this is especially important for Peter to turn to following what he said last week. Remember last week in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, God told us that the time is past for living like the Gentiles do. And then he described the indulgent lifestyle that unbelievers live. And he said that when you don't join with the world around you in that lifestyle, they are surprised and they malign you. And it's so important that Peter immediately turns to life in the church. I don't want us to miss this. If we're not paying attention, we might read these verses today and see them in contrast with just verse 3 of last week, that list of sins, and think that these qualities of holiness are the opposite of that list of sins. And in some ways they are, which we'll see in a minute. But they're more than that. God's commands to us today are also the opposite of the hostile response of the world around us. We don't respond to each other with surprise and scorn like the world does, but with prayer and love and hospitality and service. Christians are exiles in this world. We are aliens and strangers and outsiders. Peter has said that we will be mocked and reviled and met with scorn in the society around us. And God gives us a living hope. He tells us it will not always be this way. You have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. But that is not the only thing he says. 
He has also given you now an alternative community. You are an exiled in this world, but you are at home in the church. You are an outsider in society, but you are a member of God's family in the church. So Peter isn't just going to tell us how to live personal lives of holiness. He is going to tell us how to counteract the scorn of the world for our brothers and sisters in the church. How can we be a family, a loving society? How can we be the body of Christ for suffering exiles? Let's read this whole section again, and then we'll look at each of these one by one. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Look first with me at sober-minded prayer in verse 7. Peter says, The end of all things is at, are at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Just as with the guy that you may envision with the sandwich board that says the end is near, the mental and emotional state that we often associate with people who are convinced that the world is about to end is fear, being frantic or anxious or even hysterical. The Lord tells us the opposite. Because the end of all things is near, you should be characterized by self-control and sober-mindedness. These two characteristics are in perfect contrast to that list of sins in verse 3 that we looked at last week. Remember what Peter said. He said, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And we said that the common theme in that list is indulgence, obeying, listening to your every whim and urge and desire, whether it be for food or drink or sex or worship. That is how unbelievers live, Peter says. But you, God says, knowing that the end is near, are to be self-controlled. You aren't to obey your passions. You are to make your passions obedient to you. The word sober-minded is actually just sober. It is the opposite of drunkenness, which showed up in that list of sins. We want to be clear-headed instead of allowing our minds to be clouded. And Peter connects this with prayer. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. At first, that might seem a little odd. Why do I need to be self-controlled to pray? This isn't the first or the last time that Peter mentions prayer in his letter. He mentioned our prayers when he quoted Psalm 34 in chapter 3. And in Psalm 34, God's people are in the midst of trouble and they cry out to the Lord in prayer for help 
and deliverance and provision. And the promise again and again in that psalm is that the Lord will answer them. When they cry out to him, he will deliver them in their affliction. And you might be thinking, that's pretty straightforward and seems pretty easy. Why does Peter say that we have to be self-controlled and sober-minded to pray for help? And I think the natural follow-up question is, how often do you pray? How frequently do you cry out to the Lord for help in your time of need? I mentioned that this isn't the last time Peter addresses prayer. In chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. It takes thought and attention and intention to cry out to the Lord for help, to cast our anxieties upon Him in prayer. But those verses I just quoted from chapter 5 don't quite come across the right way. Our English translation says, cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you, which sounds very individualistic. But in the Greek, it's a second person plural. So if we had a southern translation of the New Testament, it would say something like this. Cast y'all's anxieties on him because he cares for y'all. This is a corporate command and a corporate promise. You are absolutely to take your personal burdens and anxieties to your heavenly father. But he is not just your heavenly father. He is our heavenly father. And so Peter's vision of prayer is not simply calling out to God when you are in affliction, but also when your brother and sister are in affliction. Be disciplined and sober-minded so that you can pray. The second command is for persevering love. Read verse 8 with me. He says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The picture that Peter has painted of the world is that it is ready to pounce on your Christian faith. They will accuse you of evil. They will revile you for doing good. They will be shocked when you don't live like them. This is not the way the church is supposed to be. Instead, the church is supposed to be characterized by love. Jesus said this to his disciples just after he washed their feet in John 13. He says to them, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the sign for the world that we are truly followers of Jesus, that we love one another. Now, love is certainly a selfless act, and there are times in Scripture where it takes on that characteristic, giving of yourself to do things for the good of others. But I don't think that is particularly the kind of love Peter is talking about here. He isn't just talking about love as action. He's talking about love as relationship. And we know that because he specifically mentions what love does 
when someone else sins. Love, he says, covers a multitude of sins. He's speaking here similarly to how Paul speaks about love in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is how love responds to sinners. You are going to sin, even as a Christian. And that realization may bring comfort or relief for you, but you need to realize that that is also true of the person next to you. He or she is going to sin. There's a good chance it will be against you at some point. When you live life with a group of sinners, you are going to be sinned against. Some may not be sins, but they still hurt. A thoughtless word, forgetting your birthday, unfulfilled promises. But there are also sins, gossip, slander, deceit, envy, disrespect, sexual immorality, theft. These are not just sins outside the church. These are sins inside the church. And we are certainly supposed to encourage one another toward holiness. We are supposed to confront one another in sin and call each other to repentance. But Peter says that love within the church is also a forgiving love. It is a love that covers over the sins of another. Do you remember Peter's question to Jesus in Matthew 18? This is just after Jesus has laid out the pattern for how to confront a brother or sister in sin. And Jesus has made it clear that if the brother or sister repents, we must forgive them. So Peter, thinking about this for a moment, says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter saw just how much Jesus was asking of them when he asked them to forgive someone who sins against you. So he wants to limit that command to forgiveness. And Jesus says, no. It is the response of the world to rejoice when you fail. The world has a long memory for your sin. But we are the church. We are the society of forgiven sinners. And in the church, love covers a multitude of sins. The next way we are to treat one another in the church is given in verse 9. Read verse 9 with me. Peter says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality at the most general level is typically associated with opening up your home to someone. It's often commanded in Scripture toward outsiders. The word itself means love for strangers. And Christians are supposed to show hospitality 
toward unbelievers. We should open up our homes to non-Christians. Rosaria Butterfield is a woman who I mentioned a few weeks back. She was a professor of English at Syracuse University who had a focus in feminist theory and queer theory. She became a Christian through the gentle and patient evangelism of a couple of Christians in Syracuse. She has an excellently convicting book on hospitality. And in it, she defines hospitality like this. Welcoming the stranger so that the stranger becomes a neighbor, and by God's grace that that neighbor might become a part of the family of God. The picture is a stranger coming close and coming near and seeing the love of God and turning to actually become a part of God's family. In it, she contrasts entertainment with hospitality. Entertainment, she says, is about impressing people and keeping them at arm's length. Hospitality is about opening up both your heart and your home. That's for strangers. How much more is this true for those who are already a part of the family of God? We are to welcome one another, not just into our homes, but into our lives. In the midst of a world where we are strangers and exiles, it is in the Christian community that we can be known and loved and have a home. We're not welcome because we're famous or charming or have something to offer. We are welcome because we are united in Christ. We are a family. And just to answer an objection... We know that you're not perfect. That is not one of the prerequisites for hospitality, having a perfect home or a perfect life. Peter has already addressed the fact that we are all sinners in need of forgiveness in the church. Still, he commands us to welcome one another. This is contrasted with the way people normally respond when they hear that the world is coming to an end. They retreat They hull up. They build bunkers. God tells us to open our doors to one another in joyful hospitality. And this is especially important for us to do for our brothers and sisters who are single. Whether they've always been single or single because of divorce or death, singleness can be especially lonely and isolating. It can compound the alienation a person feels from being in exile with the loneliness of not having other people to have meals with and plan vacations and to talk with. We ought to show hospitality to everyone in the body of Christ, but I believe we should be especially intent on hospitality to our brothers and sisters who are single. In all of this, God is not asking us to send an open invitation to everyone in the church and throw away your locks. Start with, hey, you want to come over for dinner this week? May the church be a refuge for exiles in a hostile world. And then lastly, God calls us to God-empowered service. Read verses 10 and 11 with me again. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, 
in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. These verses are similar to the list of gifts that Paul outlines in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 12. But here, Peter gives just two broad categories for gifts within the church. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. But in these verses, I want you to notice two important things. First, your gifts are not for you. They are to be used to serve your brothers and sisters in the church. The church is not a community of hoarders. Whether you're handy with cars, or you love organizing meal calendars, or you have whole books of the Bible memorized, the Holy Spirit has given you skills and loves for the good of the body of Christ. Peter says you are to be a good steward of God's grace. That means you shouldn't bury your treasure and wait for Jesus to come back. Use it in these last days for the good of others. Peter actually says that we need to all be good stewards of God's varied grace. That word that's translated varied is not a common word in Scripture. It only shows up ten times in the New Testament. Peter also uses that word in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says that believers have been grieved by various trials. It's likely that Peter is making a connection there intentionally. You have all been given various kinds of trials in your life. And for all of those various trials, God has given various gifts to the body of Christ to answer them. We are the hands and feet of Christ, a refuge for exiles in the world. Use your gifts for the good of others. Secondly, Peter tells us about the strength that we are to use in exercising these gifts. In verse 11, he says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Peter has given us a lot to do in these five short verses. We are to pray not just for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters. We're to love those who sin against us to the point where our love covers over their sins against us. We're to open our homes and our lives to our brothers and sisters in the church as a refuge in this hostile world. And we're to use every gift that God has given us to serve one another. You might hear that and be making a list. You might hear that and think that you are to white-knuckle this life of obedience and love. It may seem like God is expecting the impossible from you. But he doesn't ask you to do anything on your own. Remember the words of Jesus to his disciples. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In that same upper room meeting, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. And in these last days, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, but he has poured out his Holy Spirit upon his church. He's given him to you both as a comfort and as strength. And his strength is to drive you in love toward your brothers 
and sisters. We are not a community of superhumans who are so strong that we can care for one another perfectly. We are also not a community of helpless sinners. We are the community of the Holy Spirit, empowered to love and forgive and serve with the strength of God himself. And that's why in all these things, he is given the glory. We're not doing these things to build our own brand or to build the brand of this church. We aren't doing these things for our own glory. We are doing these things in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you all pray with me? Father, we must confess that we are not sufficient for these things. So we ask that you would empower us, that you would give us the strength that you supply, that we might live the life that you have called us to, not for our own personal gain, not so that we can check things off a box, but so that we might be a refuge for those who are exiles in this world, for each other. Do that in and through us. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen.